0: Sixty years ago today, an actor named Clifton Douglas watched the sun set in Joshua Tree National Park. He had just completed the day's filming on It Came From Jupiter, number one good American cinema's newest feature. The film, taking advantage of Cold War paranoia and America's new obsession with aliens and the future, was 32 days over schedule, all because of him. A student of the actor's studio. Douglas was known for his method acting and being consumed with detail. Marlon Brando said of him,
1: I never saw anyone like Clifton Douglas. When we were filming on the waterfront, I would him come out and stand in during my coverage. He became that waterfront. A damn tugboat tried to dock on him. It was magnificent. Book of the Beppo was on me that night.
0: After seeing the last crew member's taillights disappear into the twilight, he drove out into the desert and was never seen again. The next morning, all that was found was his car, the engine still running, and a circle burned into the ground. He would never be seen again. So what happened to Clifton Douglas? I'm Abby Larson, and welcome to Unremembered Hollywood, a podcast dedicated to telling completely real and true stories of Hollywood's yesteryear. Step back in time with me to when an actor's obsession with a role destroyed a studio and left behind a mystery unsolved to this very day. And now, the story of Clifton Douglas, the man who fell from earth. Clifton Alvin Douglas was born in upstate New York in 1931. He described his introduction to acting for a B-movie rag called Teen Science Fiction and Fact.
2: Mother took me to a production of A Christmas Carol starring the great Monty Woolley as Scrooge. When I was six, I was completely taken in. I thought the ghosts were real. I remember running onto the stage to save Mr. Woolley.
0: When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941, 10-year-old Clifton marched down to the local enlistment office and convinced them that he was a 25-year-old named Barnabas P. Haverstuff. His mother made it to the depot just in time to pull him off the bus to Fort Bragg, and the officer who signed him up was so embarrassed that no formal charges were brought. And so began a love affair with the stage and the art of acting. Using his previous acting experience, he was cast in his high school production of The Rose of St. Germain, playing the role of Major Thompson St. Clair, a role that demanded the 16-year-old portray the grizzled soldier who had lost an arm and a leg during the Crimean War. His English teacher, Mrs. Doherty, recalled 65 years later, I'd never seen anything like that. The audience gasped as he hopped around the stage,
3: knocking over lamps and pictures. It was astounding. Grown men, veterans of war, stood and applauded him after almost every line of dialogue. But they didn't have to rehearse with him. I know we're not supposed to think this, but I could not stand Clifton Douglas. Hours late. Asked a million questions about his costume and his haircut and the lighting. Kept asking every old man he met how many people he killed in the Great War. Seriously,
0: it's a high school play. Calm down about it. After graduating from high school, he made his way to New York City and started working his way into the scene. He did a few one- or two-line parts on commercials, But his first role was that of Otis, the neighbor boy of the Andersons on Father Knows Best. His character was an attempt to latch onto the coattails of Dennis the Menace, but he only lasted one episode.
4: What's going on outside? Oh,
3: Bud's just getting to know the neighbor boy, Otis.
4: New neighbors? Maybe he can live with them. (laughs) Father, mother, Otis just
2: set the garage on fire. This neighborhood could use a cleansing fire. So could this
5: kitchen.
0: (laughs) Lee Strasberg, the director of the new Actors Studio, happened to see that episode.
5: I knew right away that Clifton had an untapped natural talent, so I asked him to take a few classes to see if he could be molded into something. I remember his first class. I had asked them to flop around in a circle while crying about their childhoods or whatever. I was pretty hungover and just wanted a few minutes to ease into the day but Clifton was flopping around extra emphatically. Pretty impressive. Something I could work with.
0: Also in the class, flopping around as well, was another talented actor, James Dean, or as he was known then, Skippy Moskowitz. Here's Dean in his own words describing the encounter.
6: So there's this new guy in the studio one day, and he's flopping around real good. And I go up to him and tell him, good job with your flopping. And he says, thanks, I didn't quite believe you're flopping around. So we get into it a little bit, you know, and before I know it, we're flopping around on the ground together, just the two of us, everyone's watching. I yell out to Strasburg, hey Lee, which one of us is flopping better? And he just shook his head and walked away.
0: From that moment on, the future James Dean and Clifton Douglas were inseparable. Classes at the Actor studio were challenging under the oppressive thumb of Lee Strasberg. It was here that Clifton studied the method. It emphasized getting inside the character's experience and connecting it with the actor's own life. The idea was that the only way to truly understand the character was to live as that character. It was a technique he'd been using instinctually, but now that he understood the intricacies... He dove even deeper. I had assigned Clifton to do a part from a one-act Tennessee
5: Williams called Therefore There Go I. It was the story of a man with a limp who couldn't get away from his overbearing mother, so they turned to alcohol as a way to cope. I thought that Clifton would just show up to class a little bit tipsy and fake the limp, but Clifton, he went to a doctor, I hope, who cut one of his tendons. He lived for a whole week in New York City with a real, actual limp. That's what a commitment
0: to a role I hadn't seen it before. Very soon, Clifton became the prize student and was continuing to explore the method. This made Skippy incredibly jealous. Soon their friendship became a rivalry. It came to a head when the two were assigned the roles of Booth and Lincoln in a new play called Six Semper Tyrannus, written by Strasburg's cousin Artie. Here, presented for the first time, is a recording of a rehearsal between the two while in class with Strasburg.
6: Enjoying our American cousin here at Ford's Theater, Mr. President? Yo, I'm trying to watch this young man.
2: Oh shit, you've got a gun.
6: Sick, simple, Tyrannus.
2: What does that mean?
6: It means I'm going to shoot you. And before you die, you should know that your beard looks stupid. Everyone thinks so. How dare you! Sorry, Lincoln. It's time to become the face on the $5 bill. Also, the penny. Lee, he's using his finger as a gun. Lincoln's not supposed to have a gun. Right? Am I. I think that's right.
2: Use it! Here's your Gettysburg address. One, two, three, getting shot
6: street. Ah! <laughs> oh, ah! That legitimately hurt. How did you shoot me in the arm? You're a dangerous villain, Booth. Don't make me shoot you again. I mean, I'm, I'm bleeding. You're just holding your finger like a gun. It's called acting, Skippy. Ah, I, I need to go to the hospital. <coughs>
0: oh. Believe me, other parts of the play are way worse. But that's another story. An opportunity came to exploit Clifton's ridiculous talent in the fall of 1954 when the actor's studio would produce a showcase. All of the actors performed scenes and monologues. Clifton and the soon-to-be-named James Dean were the hits of the showcase, and one in particular caught the eye of producer and filmmaker Edward Stanton. It was a chance to go out to Hollywood to make a movie to hit the big time. A contract was handed... To Clifton, who signed it without so much as glancing through it.
2: I knew it was going to make Skippy so jealous because I got the contract and not him. I was going to Hollywood. I was going to be a big star. Talent
1: always wins.
0: Marlon Brando remembered hearing the news of the contract.
1: I told Cliff not to sign anything before having a lawyer look it over and to come to Boca de Beppo with me. He wouldn't listen. He signed and I went to Boca de Beppo. It didn't work out so well for him, Uh, but I had a lovely meal. Have you been? It's terrific. They have lasagna, fettuccine, spaghetti, chicken limone, eggplant parmigiana. They have a baked ziti. They have a spicy chicken
4: rigatoni. So he just keeps keeps
0: listing kinds of pasta for quite a while. Edward Stanton recalled.
4: Clifton was amazing. I totally believed him as Desire, and it is seen from Streetcar Named Desire. Wow, what a performance. I knew at that moment his talent would totally elevate my little pictures.
0: And now for a real advertisement from 1959.
4: can quote me on this. yoo hoo Yoo-hoo. It's Swiss Cream Sandwich! For oh, yoo hoo Yoo-hoo. And yoo A truly different cream
2: sandwich, Swiss Cream Sandwich, baked by Nabisco. The luscious, creamy fillings in a class by itself. No other like it. And these tempting vanilla cookies are so light,
4: they melt in your mouth.
2: yoo hoo
4: it's Swiss cream sandwich
2: for you, hoo, hoo, you hoo. and you, hoo, hoo, doo, hoo. Swiss cream
0: sandwich. Why that wasn't about hobos or child labor camps. That that sounded like it was real. <laughs> Edward Stanton, according to the official biography, was born in Norway and immigrated to the United States sometime in the 1930s. As he said in his autobiography, Norse to meet you, Hollywood, he came, quote, to make the big pictures. After cutting his teeth in mailrooms around town, Stanton grew frustrated at his career's pace and hung his own shingle. He called it number one good American cinema in honor of his adopted homeland, and rented a small office on Hollywood Boulevard. While he aspired to make the big pictures, what he ultimately made were low-budget science fiction and horror films. While he walked to Edward's Hollywood Boulevard office in June of 1955, Clifton saw construction workers ripping up the sidewalk for the new Hollywood Walk of Fame. He noticed the sun gleaming off a particular spot and wrote about it in his diary.
2: As soon as I saw the spot, I knew that's where my name's going. People are going to see the name Clifton Douglas and think about me and my work long after I'm gone.
0: There's no way he could have known that the little patch of sidewalk he dreamt of would still be empty to this day and that it would be one of Hollywood Boulevard's most peed-upon spots. Clifton was a little surprised by the state of Stanton's office. Paint was peeling off the walls and mysterious stains dotted the carpets. He knocked on the door with a small paper sign that read, Number One Good American Cinema, Edward Stanton, President and Founder.
4: Clifton, welcome my boy.
2: So good to see you. Mr. Stanton, I can't thank you enough. What picture are we doing first? Lear adaptation? Gritty social commentary?
4: Yeah, it is definitely commentary, yeah. Your role is very complex, a lot of layers. You'll see, you'll be playing Michael, a young man who is very conflicted about being a teenager and a zombie. Did you say zombie? Teenager and zombie. We start filming tomorrow at the dump, see you then. Oh. Uh, well, okay, I, uh,
2: uh, maybe I could read the script.
4: Yeah, yeah, I'll get you a copy as soon as it's finished. Probably looking at next Wednesday or Thursday. So, how will I know what to say tomorrow? Clifton, my boy, let me give you a little advice. If you're in front of the camera and don't know what to do, just roll your eyes back in your head and mutter, Brains! Brains! Works for almost any movie.
0: Clifton was worried, but as he was taught at the actor's studio... He must give his all. Clefton arrived on set the next day after reading all he could about zombies. He found the director, a 19-year-old USC dropout named Marvin Godfrey.
2: Mr. Godfrey, thank you so much for going on this journey with me. I just want to know more about Michael. Who is he? What did he do as a kid? What's a smell he will never forget?
3: Uh, well, he's a teenager, and he gets exposed to radiation and becomes a zombie. So,
4: radiation, I guess? Hello, hello, boys. Time is wasting, yes? Let's get the shooting.
0: In this clip, we meet Clifton's character, His romantic interest, the lab assistant played by Judith Huddleston, has discovered him shortly after his accident.
7: Michael! You were exposed to that atomic pile for five minutes! I'm so sorry. Your father and I didn't know that you'd snuck into the basement laboratory. Are you all right?
2: I feel warm. I feel so
7: warm. That's the radioactivity.
2: I think I should lay down. I'm feeling so
7: weak. You're sweating. Here, let me wipe your brow. You feel so cold to the touch! What's happening to me? If I had to theorize, your body cells are dying because of the exposure.
2: But it's not just dying. I feel... hungry.
7: Hungry? Hungry for what? No. No...
0: Unhappy with his performance on the first day of shooting, Clifton would spend his nights going to extraordinary lengths. Judith spoke about his process in this rare interview for Monsters of Film and Video.
7: On his off time, Clifton would go down to the morgue and hang out with the dead bodies. Like he would lay down next to them, take off all his clothes, and lay on the metal table next to a dead body. Naked. And then in between takes, he would just stare at me with those... Eyes, mumbling, brains. And I'm like, Clifton, do you want a hamburger? I can
0: get you a hamburger. And he would just mumble, brains,
7: brains.
0: Quality aside, Atomic Teenage Zombie was a hit on the drive-in circuit. Stanton felt a lot of this was because of his new find. Initially, Clifton was thrilled with the success.
2: Let's see Skippy turn Atomic Teenage Zombie into a hit. No one would ever really believe him as a zombie.
0: But soon after the film was released, Clifton found things had changed. He couldn't get an audition anywhere in town. His calls were often met with a, You're the atomic zombie kid, right? No thanks. He'd never felt this kind of helplessness before. Could one movie really sink his whole career before it started? It was at this low point that Hollywood kicked him when he was down. He wrote about it in his journal.
2: Walking down Santa Monica Boulevard today, I saw a billboard for a new picture, giant. And right there, leaning against a tree or something, was Skippy Moskowitz. But beneath him was the name James Dean, more like giant piece of garbage. It's probably about a man who gets a surprise growth spurt and destroys Fort Worth, but it is a studio movie. Oh, I can't believe anyone would hire that
0: hack. Clifton decided to head to Northern California to get away from the massive advertisement blitz for Giant. Shortly after he left Los Angeles, he heard the news on the radio. His old friend, Skippy Moskovitz, now James Dean, had died in an automobile accident. He wrote,
2: Skippy was like a brother to me. Sure, we fought, but that's what brothers do. The only thing I can do, what Skippy would do, what James would do, is bury myself in my work."
0: Stanton, not normally the sentimental type, told Clifton to take as long as he needed. When Clifton returned two weeks later, Stanton welcomed him back with another lead role. Ironically, Clifton would play a teenager who's killed in an accident and then rebuilt as a robot by his mad scientist father in revenge of the robo As the two-week pre-production began, Clifton's process extended further and further out into his social life. Vincent Price recalled meeting him in this interview on The Tonight Show.
1: I remember I was at Mickey Rooney's house for a little party one night at the bar mixing myself a drink. When I see this gentleman walk up, I smile and say hello. And I'm greeted with a beep, beep, boop, boop. <laughs> that's when I realized it was Clifton. And I said to him, Clifton, are you okay? And more beep, beep, boop, boop in return. <laughs> I couldn't understand the gag, so I handed him a daiquiri and he beep, booped what was supposed to be a thank you, I guess, and went on his way. <laughs> I said to Mickey, do you think that robot act ever gets him laid? And Mickey said, Well, yes. I saw him heavy-petting the carburetor on my Chevy earlier.
0: <laughs> it was during the filming of Revenge of the Teen that Clifton took on a new manager, Barbara Babs Norsby. A former actress, her career had been destroyed when she got drunk on the set of John Wayne's Apache at Midnight and burned down the set. But she was able to find a niche as a talent manager. Here in a recording of her one woman show, It's Babs, she describes how she met Clifton.
3: I was holding down my stool at the frolic room when the door opened. Papa! And light poured into the bar, but it wasn't daylight, it was starlight. It was Clifton Douglas, and he sat next to me. I turned to him and said, You're an actor. That's right. I'm Clifton. Who are you? I'm the woman who's going to change your life. I'm your new partner. I'm Babs Norsby, and I'm going to manage you. Papa!
0: Barbara Norsby got to the tough task of getting Clifton into more highbrow movies and out of the slum of science fiction and horror.
3: The tragedy of Clifton is that his dedication to his art would sometimes sabotage his career ambitions. One night, over a bottle of booze given to me by Bogie himself, I said, Cliff, why do you always gotta go method? Can't you just be yourself? Barbara? <sighs> I don't even know who I am anymore. I know who you are, Cliff. You're a great actor. You just need a picture to star in. And I know just the one. It was a little film called To Catch a Thief, directed by the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. And I got Clifton Douglas a screen test, and it went something like this. So, Clifford, Barbara Norsby speaks very highly of you. Let's see what you can do. Uh, I don't know who this Clifford is. You could call me The Cat. Okay, Mr. Cat. Let's start with the opening scene. It's The Cat. "'It's not an actual cat. It's a cat burglar.' "'Meow, man!' "'Why are you licking your hand?' "'And with that, he climbed out onto the studio's roofs "'and hopped from one to another and out of big studio pictures.
0: Forever.'" Edward Stanton had really lucked out. Not only was his contract star a dedicated, gung-ho performer, he was also otherwise unemployable. It was in 1957, after doing six pictures with number one good American cinema, that Edward started noticing a change in Clifton. He was becoming more demanding, and things finally came to a head during the filming of The Deadly Rose of Texas.
2: You know what they say April showers bring May flowers, and May flowers bring June funerals. <coughs> I don't want to be a flower.
4: Edward! Cut! What is it, Clifton? It's not Clifton. I'm not Clifton. I'm... Reggie, right. What's the problem, Reggie?
7: God damn it, Eddie! This is the fourth screen take that he's ruined.
4: Clifton, what is... No! No,
2: I am not that guy. I am Reggie. I've been infected with a plant virus that is slowly turning my flesh into the flesh of a plant.
4: Yeah, of course, of course. You don't sound very worried, sir. Oh, I'm plenty worried.
7: Can we just call it for lunch?
2: Lunch? How can it be lunch? This is the middle of the night. You don't have lunch in the middle of the night, Sarah.
7: My name is Judith, and your name is Clifton. And you're not a plant, or a robot, or a spider with a horse's head, or anything else. You are a bottom-of-the-barrel actor, and we're in a god-awful movie about
4: God knows what. Hey.
7: (gasps) I will be in my trailer. And by that, I mean my mom's car.
0: Increasingly, Clifton was making more and more creative demands of the project. He wanted more rehearsal time, more time to do research into the roles.
2: People are suggesting that I'm taking this to extremes, but this art, this work is important. You can't just play the role of a werewolf. You have to be the werewolf. I am not
4: crazy. He was crazy. costing me a lot of money. When he played the goop, In Monster G, he refused to move off the set. He remained in character the whole time. We had to move him around in Big Tub. I got crew guys breathing down my neck, threatening to break some legs because this actor won't step out of character to go to craft service. And Clifton demanded an all-liquid diet for the shoot, saying that's what the goop would consume. But I am already ten days over schedule with all footage of him, so I got him an all-liquid diet.
0: There was concern that Clifton was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. His family would receive calls from him, but he would always use a funny voice or an accent. But the business of Hollywood wouldn't slow down for an actor out of control. Babs.
3: The next big feature was Vampiro! It was about a teenaged boy who was bitten by a vampire bat whilst out one night trying to make out with a girl. Sure enough, that boy became a vampire. I will never forget when he asked me to get him some human blood to drink. I told him, yes, yes, of course, Clifton. And I went to the prop guide American and got him to give me a whole mess of fake blood, mostly sugar and food coloring. Sometimes I would blend up a banana or some greens in there for him just to make sure he was getting a little nutrition. After a couple weeks, he would walk up and down Sunset trying to put people under thrall. He may have gotten arrested a few times, but the hard work paid off. When I saw him turn himself into a bat right in front of me... I wept.
2: It was a little strange. I did not expect to gain 20 pounds from human blood, and it led to some real interesting bathroom times. But eventually, I got myself clean and ready for the next role.
0: It was the role that would challenge the young actor like never before, and would prove to be his last. More after this, a rare set of outtakes of an ad campaign that Marlon Brando did in 1983.
1: All right, rolling and action, please, Martin. Action, please. If you and your family are looking for a new place to eat this weekend, look no further than the Beppo. Cut. Marlin, sorry, you must have been handed the wrong copy. This ad is for Florida oranges. Oh, yes. Yes, of course. Ready? Fantastic. And action. The Beppo uses only the freshest Florida oranges in their cut... Florida Oranges ad, take three, and action. Grown in the warm Florida sunshine, there's nothing quite like juice from a fresh Florida orange. Here at Booker de Beppo, we use them for our signature citrus-plosion tortellini poppers. Cut, look around you, Marlin, we're in an orange grove, not Booker de Beppo. This is the worst Booker de Beppo I've ever been to. I'm going back to the one in Palm Beach. Carmen, you fetch my linens.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, so we're back to fake stuff now? No, just tell me beforehand if it's fake or if it's real. Otherwise, I look like an idiot. No, I know, but I'm saying, here's a real thing, and then it's Marlon Brando talking about a restaurant that wasn't even open in the 80s. No, we'll just... Let's just talk about it later. I love you too. It Came From Jupiter was an attempt by Stanton to mix up the formula. Here from a transcript of a police interrogation regarding Clifton's disappearance, Edward explained.
4: thought the studio, we were relying a little too much on the formula. You know, a teenager is exposed to something, and he turns into something, and then something happens, and Judith screams. Truth be told, we weren't putting our best foot forward. So, I thought, instead of a teenager turning into something, what about something? turning into a teenager.
1: Isn't that the same thing?
4: No, 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 no. Well, sure it is. It's something turning into something else. Same thing. No, no. See, you're not thinking of the context. Previously, I would have a teenager turn into a monster or something, yes? But with it came from Jupiter, to mix it up a bit, I had an alien turn into a teenager. Totally different thing.
1: Hey, what if the kid found an alien and helped it get back home? And then the alien and the kid became friends while the kid it from the government.
4: Oh, now you're a screenwriter? Please, that's the worst idea for a movie I've ever heard.
0: The shoot began in March and immediately went over schedule with demands from Clifton. Babs went out of her way to help her client. He
3: knew. I knew. We both knew. This could be the role that would finally make the world stand up and take science fiction Seriously. Of course, I was going to need to get him everything he needed. Pictures of Jupiter, a language guy that could make up Jupiterian, food created by the best food scientists in the world. This is what a world-class manager does for a world-class talent.
0: Clifton read everything he could featuring the stories of aliens and alien invasions. One particular book, Aliens Among Us, caught his imagination. A satirical look at the desire for conformity of people in 1950s culture, it told the story of sleeper agents that had been planted among the population, ready to be snapped awake. Clifton, however, mistook satire for fact.
4: He believed he was an alien. Uh Uh-huh. Like I said, it was all part of his acting process.
0: With all the interior shots completed, production moved to the desert in May of 1959. First up was the shot of the flying saucer landing, a simple effects shot that the production team had done several times before for films like My Stepfather is a Flesh-Eating Martian and Russian Spies from Beyond the Moon. But as the team would soon learn, nothing with Clifton Douglas was easy. Clifton refused to get on board the flying saucer, claiming it wasn't accurate, that his people would never fly in something so clearly designed by earthlings. But it was his time in the makeup chair that seemed to cause the most problems. Makeup artist Edie Maxwell described what happened in her book Lipstick. That last night, after spending all day on set and not getting a single frame, we brought him in to clean him all up, make him human again. He freaked out. He started screaming about us pulling off his skin or something. I never saw anything close to that weird. And I've been to Tony Curtis's ski cabin. Clifton stormed out of makeup, still dressed as the alien. He hopped into his car and drove away yelling, Enough of this, I'm going home. When we return, the thrilling conclusion of The Man Who Fell From Earth. Hi,
6: kids. Look at some delicious magic with the extra good chocolate flavored syrup, Bosco. Now watch. Take ice cream, spoon on extra rich, extra thick, extra chocolatey Bosco syrup. There's the best chocolate flavor you ever tasted. More Bosco magic. Cake, ice cream topped with extra thick, extra
4: chocolatey Bosco syrup.
0: Try it. Okay, so that one was real again. Real, fake, real, fake. Just don't have me say, and now a real advertisement, and then play just whatever. No, I know that that one was real. The following afternoon, when Clifton didn't report to set, Edward called the authorities. A few hours later, a park ranger discovered Clifton's car about 40 miles from where he was last seen. As the ranger approached the car, he noticed the engine was still running about 20 feet from it was a large circle burned into the ground. Without its star production was shut down, and Clifton officially became a missing person. Edward Stanton became a suspect in the disappearance of Clifton Douglas. After investigating for months with no evidence and no leads, the investigators quietly stopped working the case, but Edward never fully recovered his reputation. He moved back to Norway, opening a movie memorabilia store. But whatever did happen to Clifton Douglas? There were reports of men matching Clifton's description from Terre Haute, Indiana, all the way to Tacoma, Washington. Or was it something more unearthly? Here's Barbara Norsby. I think he finally did
3: it. He didn't take on the role of alien. He didn't see himself as an alien. He became the alien and he found his way home. Cliffy, if you're up there looking down on us, muzzle to the high degree to the greatest actor of all time.
0: That's certainly a poetic ending to Clifton's story, but in my own research, I've come up with an alternate theory. What if on that fateful night in 1955, when James Dean lost his life, it wasn't James Dean at all. Clifton wanted out of his contract with Stanton, and Dean, never fully at peace with his stardom, wanted to go back to being Skippy Moskovitz. Maybe the two men came to an agreement. After looking back through the police report of the accident, a few things jumped out at me. First, the tow truck driver that hauled away Dean's destroyed Porsche 550 Spider reported that the car yelped repeatedly while being towed down the highway. But it was the coroner's report that's the most curious. Deceased, James Dean of Los Angeles, California. Cause of death, blunt force trauma as a result of high-speed collision. Notes. Deceased offered coroner a ten-spot to forget the whole thing, which he explained to be part of an identity swap deal for research of a movie role. And coroner accepted. So if they switched places, what happened to them? For Clifton, maybe those disparate sightings across the country were real. Maybe he lived out a quiet, unremarkable existence somewhere in the country. And maybe Dean, like Clifton before him, got bored with playing monster teens and just disappeared. But in a very intriguing turn of events, I received a package just a few hours before recording this podcast. It didn't have a return address, but a note attached to a DVD said, I think you'll find this of interest, and is signed, a friend. On the DVD is an audition tape featuring a distinguished-looking older gentleman.
6: Skip Moskowitz, reading for Senior Citizen Number 2. <clears throat> With Centrum Silver, I get all the vitamins and minerals I need to lead an active and healthy life. This rebel has finally found his cause.
0: Unremembered Hollywood was created and produced by Charlie Fonville This week's episode was written by Larry Pontius Abby Larson was played by Annie Savage That's me Original music by Jonathan Dinerstein With Mark Agliardi as Clifton Douglas Craig Kakowski as Edward Stanton and Jim Anderson Shuley Cowan as Barbara Norsby Margaret Anderson and Mrs. Doherty Tony Trucks as Judith Huddleston Bryce Johnson as James Dean. Hal Lublin as Lee Strasberg and Bud Anderson. Justin Neufeld as Marlon Brando, Vincent Price and Detective. Jonathan Dinerstein as director. And Mike Furman as Marvin Godfrey. Join us next month for another Unremembered Tale from Hollywood's Yesteryear. You can subscribe and find more episodes and info on our website, unrememberedhollywood.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, if such things interest you, at Unremembered Pod. And now, one of our guests has a favor to ask.
1: Hello, this is Marlon Brando. If you like Unremembered Hollywood, please leave us a review on iTunes, whatever that is, and I'll see you at Boca de Beppo. Arrivederci.
0: I guess we're not done with Boca de Beppo. And in case you hadn't noticed, Unremembered Hollywood is a work of fiction. Some of the names are the names of real people, but they never said these words in this order. Characters, dialogue, and actions were all completely made up. I can't believe I have to say this, but there was never an arson-centric episode of Father Knows Best, and Marlon Brando never did an ad for Buka Di